take the I'll take the silence as a hint that we should start a kind of collective, a huge collective hint. Uh, well, first, uh, welcome uh, those of you from inside and outside the school. Uh, welcome to the LSE, or hello. Uh, I'm Tony Travers from the government department uh, here at the school, and uh, I am chairing this evening's event on immigration and asylum in Britain. Now, I won't say much by way of introduction because this is a subject, uh, like most of our panel actually, who don't need much, it is a subject that doesn't need much introduction. Um, immigration comes top of Ipsos Mori's unprompted polling questions. Each month, the pollsters Ipsos Mori do a, uh, they ask people, what's the most important thing to you when you you know, in Britain today, and immigration comes top of that list regularly. Occasionally the NHS gets to the top, sometimes the economy during recessions, but most of the time it's immigration. And more than that, of course, uh, UKIP, uh, a newish political party, not that new I suppose anymore, scored almost 13% in the general election, 13% of the popular vote, one seat. Um, significantly off the back of concerns about immigration and indeed Europe and they are linked issues and we'll be dealing with Europe in a second event to some extent next week. Asylum, which has from time to time featured in the debate about this issue, has come to the centre of the political stage in recent months, especially because of events in the Mediterranean and at Calais, making it a very, very complex political issue for politicians in all parties. Now, the current surge in immigration really began in the mid-1990s. Of course, there had been immigration to the UK, well, for centuries, and certainly after 1948. But most particularly, the middle of the 1990s saw a substantial increase in immigration, net immigration to the United Kingdom, which has continued every year ever since. And despite the current government's efforts to reduce net international immigration. They managed to reduce it from outside the EU, but not from within the EU. In fact, it's grown in from inside the EU, uh, one for one or more than one for one to some extent, to replace the fall outside the EU. This has had uh, the growth, therefore, in the internationally born immigrant population, and many, of course, of the migrants become UK citizens over time. But the impact of this substantial change to the UK's population has had it has had impact on voting, uh, on employment, on public services, and on cohesion, uh, broadly defined. And it's these issues we're going to touch on uh, this evening. Um, and all I'd say is that um, although immigration and asylum are obviously different issues, clearly one is a subset of the other. Uh, one is clearly related to the other. Um, and... One final thought, of course, is the UK government controls the border, but where, where people choose to live, either as immigrants or asylum seekers, though asylum seekers are often those who gain status as asylum seekers, dispersed around the country, is something that shows up very locally indeed. And so there's a fascinating uh, difference there between where uh, UK government controls the borders and the way immigration and asylum seeking turns out on the ground. Anyway, enough from me. Just by way of introduction, we have uh, four speakers this evening, um, and they are Alan Manning, who's Professor of Economics at the Department of Economics at the LSE and Director of the Community Programme at the Centre for Economic Performance, 
Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist with The Guardian, formerly a BBC social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent. Christine Whitehead is Emeritus Professor of Housing Economics at the LSE and has also worked, I think still works occasionally, at the Department of Land Economy at Cambridge. And Eric Kaufman is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and currently has an ESRC grant affiliated to the think tank Demos in examining white working class responses to diversity in the UK. So the setup for this evening is each of our panelists will speak for seven or eight minutes and then uh, we will open this up to the floor. We should have three quarters of an hour at least uh, to discuss these issues from the floor and we'll aim to finish just before eight o'clock. Polly. Thanks very much, Tony. Um, politics of, of migration, of immigration. Uh, there's no doubt, as Tony says, that <clears throat> the spectacle over the summer and, and still now as, the, as, as, as we're into winter of so many hundreds of thousands of people <clears throat> washed up on the shores of Greece and, and Italy has been a very shocking sight from wherever you are across the political spectrum, whether you regard it as you know, <clears throat> barbarian hordes <clears throat> arriving in civilized Christian Europe or whether you feel immense uh, pity for them. Uh, people don't flee their homes, particularly in those desperate situations unless they're fleeing something even more frightening than death at sea and death of your children at sea. Um, the Calais uh, camp, which has been growing, of course, is minute uh, in comparison with the sorts of uh, influx of people through the, uh, uh, by sea to, uh, to, to Greece and, and Italy. Um, but it's no doubt it sent a, a ripple of panic and fear through the politics, the politicians of, of Europe, um, very alarmed, absolutely unsure what to do. Uh, Angela Merkel's remarkably generous open-door policy seems to be coming unstuck. Her popularity, which has been incredibly firm for many years, has fallen badly. Pegida is causing alarm, uh, as, as Le Pen, uh, Marine Le Pen is causing alarm in France, um, which makes UKIP rather um, shrink into... You know, insignificance with only one MP here, but nevertheless can uh, undermine political parties a great deal. Um, and the truth is, when you look at the polling, people don't like and never have much liked migrate immigration. Uh, and that's been true of supporters of both of our main political parties and across most uh, European countries. People fear for cohesion. They fear for all kinds of things, the arrival of of, of foreigners alarms people. Um, 75, I'll start with the YouGov polling. 75% of people consistently say that immigration is too high. 18% say it's about right. Um, so that's a, you know, that, that's a pretty clear and, and, and hasn't changed very much. Um, people say that uh, it's, it's, they fear that it's, um, uh, that they, uh, say that they do support people coming to work for the NHS because they can see how many people in the NHS are actually born abroad uh, and come over here to work and the NHS would collapse without them. They do support people studying at university. They see the, the practical value of that. They do support the highly educated coming uh, and people who want to invest significant sums. Uh, and even they do support, in theory, the idea of people who are fleeing persecution and wars. 
they just have doubts about how many of them really are, but in theory they support the principle. Uh, and that's true of, of conservative voters as well as Labour voters, and even of some UKIP voters uh, hold, hold that view. But uh, that, those feelings are uh, on the whole overwhelmed by their fear about schools and the NHS being unable to cope. Um, and 63% who say they fear losing control of borders, that that is an essential part of national identity is that you control your own borders. And if people seem to be coming here against the will of most people, against the will of a government that has said it would stop it or at least reduce it to tens of thousands and fails to, there is a sense of out-of-controlledness which is alarming for people, I think, to feel that their government doesn't do what they want or can't do what they want it to do. Um, interesting sort of sidelines uh, from YouGov about which country, how people feel about immigrants from which countries. They're quite pro-immigrants from Poland, India, and the Caribbean, but they're quite anti-immigrants from Romania, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Who cares most? Well, I think we'll hear from, from, from Eric about that, that it's uh, women, working class people, people over 40 are much more hostile than, on the whole, men, middle classes, and people under 40 who are much less hostile, somewhat less hostile. Um, why would that be? Because it's people who are themselves most insecure uh, who feel that uh, immigration is most of a th more of a threat to them, and people who are themselves immensely secure feel they have nothing very much to lose, and those, those perceptions may well be accurate in many parts of the country, or certainly strongly felt. Um, only 21% think that a strict curb on immigration would do harm to business, as the CBI keeps telling them. 57% um, say they think that's false and nonsense. So the CBI doesn't make a lot of headway with their argument in favor of, of, of certain types of migration. Um, but people do worry about the effect on the NHS because they do see so many uh, foreign-born people working in the NHS and they are genuinely worried at what the effect might be. And for that reason, quite rightly, but very late in the day, Theresa May has at last taken away the visa restrictions on foreign nurses coming to work here as our hospitals desperately need them. Um, but what's interesting, it, what's quite good, is the extent to which the country has adapted more than you might think from those figures to, uh, to migration. In 2005, uh, half of people, of white people, reported that all their friends were white. And now that's only true of 37% of white people saying all their friends are white. So there has been a far more, uh, a, a, well, quite a significant uh, shift in what, people, in what people say about who they know and who their friends are. Um, the, again, this is self-reported. Many more, very few now worry, very few now worry, according to, to YouGov, about uh, having a migrant as a neighbor, which used to be something that was uh, alarming people in the 1970s. Very few say they would worry having a boss or indeed their son or daughter marrying someone who is a, a, a migrant. And that, those are quite significant uh, social shifts in recent decades. Now if you look at Ipsos Mori polling, which um, Tony was talking about, um, concern over migration is very high. It is at the top. It is the most is important issue for supporters of both the main political parties. 
Um, 49% worry that uh, there are many too many immigrants and they want it stopped. 19% worry that we are being too mean uh, in the face of this refugee crisis and that Britain should do more. Um, how do we match up to other countries? Here's quite an interesting poll. Global survey, again, this is uh, part of Ipsos Mori's research across 24 countries. You know, how, how, how hostile are we? Well, we're a bit better than most, a bit. 28% in the UK say that immigration has had a positive effect, and that's nine points up in just since, since 2011, when it was only 19. The global uh, average score is 21%, so we're a bit better than the global score. America, which you think of as being, you know, uh, this great migrant nation, is below us, only 25% uh, think that immigration has a positive effect. Germany, surprisingly, only 20%. Um, the United Kingdom is also quite good. That 40% say that immigration has made our country more interesting. 40% say that, which is good. Uh, and that's a, a, a quite a steep rise recently. The global average, only 30% think that the effect of migration has made their country more interesting. So the UK is sort of eighth out of 24 in that level of positivity. 38%, um, only 38% though say they think it does the economy any good, but that's better than the global average where tw only 28% across those 24 countries think migration does their economies any good. Despite all the evidence we shall maybe hear to the contrary. Um, so migration is not popular anywhere much. Um, we don't have uh, any part, we, we, we're lucky though that we don't in this country have um, as much of it, it, its political threat doesn't seem as great. What's interesting about it is although there's a very constant level of negativity, the salience of it goes up and down quite a lot. Um, going right back to the 1970s, this is Ipsos Mori again, uh, say that a solid two-thirds have always said there are too many migrants. And that is, very that is very constant. It blips up sometimes when Mrs. Thatcher talked about swamped. Uh, that created a blip uh, uh, against migration. Um, people uh, also, um, when it came to the election, <clears throat> it was quite interesting to see <clears throat> to what extent it was um, an electoral issue or not. There was a lot of fear that it would be. Um, Ipsos has done, a, 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 has done a, an election study, which is a longitudinal study, which is a large panel of people that they followed over quite a period, long period of time. And in that panel, it had very little effect on their intention to vote. They saw both the main parties as not much different in their ability to deal with this or their likelihood of dealing with this, perhaps perhaps partly because Cameron had failed his own target. So its valence was very weak. Um, you know, people who've asked felt strongly about it, but it didn't actually sway the way they voted in ways that people thought that it would or it might. It swung very few votes. Of course, Tony said more went to UKIP, but it was only one seat. Neither party talked about it. You could say that was a conspiracy of silence. Maybe that's one of the things that disaffects people from main political parties, that they, there is a sort of conspiracy not to talk about things that they can't handle. Um, the final <clears throat> wave of that, of that uh, longitudinal study is coming out tomorrow. 
<coughs> and it says <coughs> it still hasn't shifted much, despite all, all that's happened in terms of migration since the migration news since the election. Uh, astonishingly, though, people in that study say they don't think that us not taking refugees has damaged our reputation in the uh, EU, or else they don't care if it has, <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, some people say we should take more, two-thirds say we most definitely shouldn't. Um, the question really, the big political question is, is it migration that has loosened the social contract over the years? There are writers like David Goodhart who claim it has, that if you're within your borders, you have a whole lot of people not born there whose parents haven't contributed, whose grandparents haven't contributed, didn't, weren't here to fight in wars we fought in, then it loosens the social bond and people are less willing to share collectively, less willing to pay into welfare systems because they think a whole lot of people taking out of the welfare system are not the people who've paid in over the years, that the spirit of 1945 uh, and enthusiasm for the welfare state has been loosening. Well, the interesting evidence about that, again, this is Ipsos Mori, is that what's much more important is not about migration, it's generational, that it's the young whose bonds have weakened considerably in terms of their connection to that sort of collectivity run by the state. It doesn't mean that they're selfish or not interested. They are huge campaigners. They are huge volunteers. Um, they just don't really see the welfare state as being particularly relevant. Maybe because they've, in their generation, had so much less from it. They're paying university fees. They've got big debts. Um, oddly enough, the old, who do have memories from the 50s and 60s and that sort of collective endeavor, are much more likely to vote Tory. Uh, the young are much more likely to vote Labour. This is very confusing. <laughs> but it does seem that it's not much related to attitudes towards migration because the young are far more positive. They are themselves more diverse and far more positive about diversity and about migration. So for them, that's not an issue. If there are loosening of bonds between them and the old 1945 state, it doesn't seem to be in any way connected with attitudes towards migration. So I would say that David Goodhart has misinterpreted that. He may have seen that weakening, but got the reason wrong. Uh, I'll just end up by saying, of course, the big test is the EU referendum, uh, where migration is the winning ticket for Nigel Farage, for UKIP, uh, for all of those uh, anti-Europeans. They can make abstract arguments about sovereignty, but really, for them, the winning ticket and the, and the support that they get, again, mostly from a, a working class base, uh, relies very much on fear of migration. If we could control our borders if we were out of Europe, they don't say anything, of course, about what would happen to the French, the Dutch, and the Belgians who are acting as our border guards in their countries. If I were them, I would just put all those people in Calais onto a comfortable ferry and send them across to the Isle of Wight or Southampton or wherever. There would be no reason any longer why they shouldn't simply let everybody through, but they never talk about that. They just talk about the within Europe borders. Um, I'll stop there, but I think it's a difficult question, and I think when the coming referendum, it's going to be crucial. Great. Thanks ever so much. Very good. Um, now, Alan, you're going to talk about sort of the impacts of immigration on employment and related issues. Yeah, I, I mean, on the the labour market in, in general. So I'm going to just talk very briefly about what we might expect the effect to be. Sorry, should I have this? Um, I don't think it is. it working? I think it is. Oh, okay. Um, what, we'd ex what we might expect the effects to be, 
what the evidence is about what the effects seem to be, uh, have been in the UK, and then at the end try to sort of connect that to actually what the general public seems to think the effects are. Um, so the first of those, what would we expect the effects um, to be? Well, generally, if we would think that if a sort of there's an entry into the labour market of a particular sort of worker, um, that that is going to um, harm those workers who sort of compete uh, with those because there's increased competition for the sort of work that they're after. Um, these are people that we would, in the jargon of economists, would call substitutes for the extra workers who might be migrants. So this is the sort of thing you see playing out perhaps when you've got Uber trying to enter into the London to increase the supply of sort of people providing taxi type services in London and this being opposed by the black cab drivers in part because they think this is increased competition for the services that they provide and it's going to harm their employment prospects, their earnings prospects. Um, but on the other side, there are also workers who are complements to other sorts of workers. That's the economics jargon, but that would mean that their productivity is um, boosted by the presence of having more of some other sort of worker. And these are people whose, we would think, their labour market prospects are actually increased, improved in both employment or wage terms by having more immigration. And often those, um, those the people who are complements for extra sort of workers are often, I think, not very visible or directly identifiable, whereas the substitutes often are. So I'll give one sort of example, which I should emphasize is a sort of hypothetical example rather than something that I actually say is, is the case. But if, for example, more immigration led to the price of construction uh, work going down because um, there are more construction workers around and it's more competition among construction workers for work and that means that homeowners can get their construction work done around the house more cheaply than they could before. That would mean that then they've, they've got some more money left over after fixing their plumbing or whatever and they're <coughs> going to spend that extra leftover money on all sorts of other stuff creating jobs for all sorts of other people in ways that, and so what that means is all those other people are going to be complements to the construction workers. They're going to be people who benefit, whose labour market prospects are improved from that. It sounds slightly absurd to say, oh, that hairdresser over there, they've got more work because of this immigration, but it's actually very true. And so I think that one of the things that's often missed is, is, those, is focusing very much on the, the direct sort of visible effects, missing out on the diffuse invisible effects, even though they actually add up to something that's much, much more I important. So we might expect then immigration to sort of benefit some people, um, harm others. I think if we think that immigrants are on average different from natives, there is um, some reason to think that actually natives on average are going to be better off. Their labour market prospects are improved by having more migrants in the economy, but that's not to say that everybody will gain, it's just that on average they will gain. But I think the other th final thing to say is that sort of none of these effects need, need be particularly large. Um, and actually when we turn to the sort of empirical evidence on what seems to have happened in the UK, I think um, 
the empirical evidence, if I had to summarize it, is that none of the effects, labor market effects, on native workers seem to be very large, or at least large enough to justify the prominence that the issue has in many people's um, concerns. Now, there are some studies that are sort of claimed to find a negative effect of immigration on the wages and employment prospects of some uh, workers, typically lower wage or lower skilled workers. Um, I, you know, I, I think those are sort of respectable studies. I'm myself a little bit um, skeptical about them because one has to think they would often focus on the expansion of the EU to include the Eastern European countries in 2004 and how that harmed the prospects of lower skill um, British workers. But actually the years between 2004 and the financial crisis were really amongst the best years in a generation for the lower skilled British workers. They were the period in which wage inequality at the bottom, so the lowest earners in the UK, <coughs> were doing better than they had for a generation. And so it just sort of doesn't really line up that their labour market was deteriorating a, a great deal uh, because of that expanded immigration from, uh, from the East. Of course, you could argue they would have done even better if we hadn't had it, but I, I'm not quite sure how convincing I find that. Now, my own work on this subject actually suggests that the wage, uh, the depressing effect of new migration on wages does exist for some groups, but that group is almost entirely existing migrants. So that when we have more migration, the people whose labour market prospects are most harmed are those existing migrants. And the reason for that is that they are, do they are the ones who are competing most directly with the new migrants. And because of occupational segregation, the jobs that native British workers do and migrants do are very different. The direct competition with many, in many cases with British native workers is actually not, not that great. And so British native workers end up being what I would call complements. So we estimated that our effect was that almost all groups of British native workers gained from migration, but really tiny amounts. I should emphasize that, really small amounts. Um, I should say that the one group that also that does gain are the migrants themselves. If they're coming from lower income countries, the gains in, in income that they get by moving to the UK are very large. And they are very large relative to any cost gains or losses suffered by British, um, British workers. And that may also <coughs> be important because there's a sense of the benefits from migration are not perhaps being fairly shared, that migrants are getting big gains relative to natives for whom, you know, it's perhaps much of a wash. Okay, so why then do people feel so strongly about it? I've sort of, my view is the effects are probably not very large uh, one way um, or the other. And, you know, I, I sort of, I, I don't really have very strong views about whether they're sort of negative or positive. On the whole, I've sort of laid out my views, but I, I think you can make a respectable case the other way. But the public, much of the public seems to be convinced that the effects are very large in one direction. So why, that is miles away from where I um, am. So why is that? And I think there is one, there are a number of reasons. I'll just focus on, on one to sort of keep it brief, which is a very common belief among the general public 
is that there are a fixed number of jobs in the economy. And then it almost stands to reason that if you bring in one other person who goes into employment, that's one less job for a, uh, a native British person or an existing migrant. Now, this view is, I'm a labor economy, market economist. This is a known um, to labor market economists as the lump of labor fallacy. That is not intended as a compliment uh, <laughs> to, to this view in case there's any... <coughs> It really is not true. And, uh, you know, there are lots of ways of looking at this. Um, in some sense, increased migration is simplest. It's just an increase in the labor force in, in, the, in an economy. We can look, countries differ hugely in the extent, the rates at which their labor forces are growing, whether it's from migration or natural population growth, or even the biggest change in, in countries like the UK in the past 50 years in the entry of women into the labour force where previously they didn't. There is not the slightest shed of evidence that the countries, the places that have had bigger increases in their labour force for any of these reasons or faster rates of increase have worse labour market outcomes. I mean, when the government, you know, it, you know the size of the labour force in the UK now is massively bigger than it was 50 years ago, and yet the rate, the share of the pop working age population in employment is higher now than it was 50 years ago. <laughs> so it really is a fallacy to think that there's a fixed numbers of jobs available in the economy. There's actually a simple reason why that is the case, that although people entering the labor force add to labor supply, they also, the money they earn, they also spend. And so they, at the same time as they increase the supply of labor, they increase the demand for labor. And those two things really roughly go back up in proportion to each other. So <coughs> I think that there is a very considerable gap um, which people like me, I try to um, explain to people why the lump of labor fallacy is indeed a fallacy. And at the end, I'm normally not very successful. I, I, I don't have any great <laughs> ambition, but I always feel that I should, should at least have, a, have another go um, at it. But I think that that deep-seated view um, is actually you know, very important. And, it, and, and it's, it's a dangerous view because it leads to really mistake, mistaken policies, not just relating to migration. Uh, many countries in the 1980s pursued policies of early retirement, thinking if we just get these old people like me to, to retire, then young people like you will move into those, those jobs that we've vacated. It really didn't work at all. It's simply those jobs simply disappeared from the economy. Um, and so, you know, this is the one thing I'd like to predict to anything, perhaps. Uh, it is not to believe in the lump of labor fallacy. I'll stop there. Very good. Excellent. Um, <coughs> Eric. Okay. Eric has some slides, so we'll now Sorry to be the slides. first one to use PowerPoint. Um. Are we going to be in the way? Is the...
voting of immigration in the context of Britain, looking particularly at the white British as the ethnic majority in England. And I think it's important to bring in issues of identity and culture, which I think are central to explaining some of the response uh, that we see. The, one of the take-homes, really, of this talk is that numbers really do matter, that the rate of immigration and ethnic change really does help to explain uh, the level of anti-immigration sentiment and also voting for parties such as the British National Party or UK. Um, now, I'm going to start with the BNP. Anyone remember the BNP? Anyway. Um, so, British National Party, this really is a, a, a scatter plot of the British National Party vote in the 2010 to 2012 local elections up here. So that's the percent the BNP scored in a ward in those elections, and this is a measure of the rate of ethnic change in the 2000s. Um, and what we see actually is the wards that had the fastest ethnic change also had an elevated BNP share of the vote, especially if they were originally relatively white in 2001. So a place like, uh, well, any of these wards in Barking and Dagenham, which went from 81% white British in 2001 to 49% white British in 2011, 10 years in that dramatic shift in ethnic composition. And there you had the BNP winning over 10, I think it was 12 councillors. Uh, that's sort of an extreme example, but just to say that this ethnic piece of ethnic change factor seems to be a statistically significant predictor of the BNP share of the vote in local elections. Now, if we move nationally, uh, some of the, uh, the work that I've done with the citizenship surveys, and these capturing about 20,000 white British respondents. This is individual level information. Roughly 80, 82% of white British respondents say they want immigration reduced in these surveys, which took place in this period, 2009 to 11. But what's interesting is if we look at this red line, it kind of matches up to what we saw in the last slide. And that is, if you have an area that has had no ethnic change, it's more like 75% that want immigration reduced. Areas that have had the most ethnic change, and this is in terms of wards, in this case, 36 points increase, you get 90% saying they want immigration reduced. And that's controlling for individuals' demographic background, economic background, such as their class age, and so on. So that's a quite a statistically important effect. Now, it's not the only effect, actually. One of the, an even more dramatic effect, and somewhat more of a positive story, actually, is that the level of established ethnic minorities in your ward, and a ward has about 6,500 people, um, the higher the, the presence, the established presence of ethnic minorities, the lower white British opposition is to immigration. In fact, in wards where it's 50% ethnic minorities, only about 62% of white Britons say that they want immigration reduced, whereas in 100% white wards, it's 85%. So that's a, a bigger effect, actually, than the ethnic change effect. So we might look at that and say, oh, that's a positive story. The, the more immigrants come in the country, they have more contact with the native population and that will take the edge off people's fears and they will be less opposed to immigration. And I'd say some of that is occurring, but it takes time. And the other thing that's important is it's not the only thing going on. And I want to talk now about UKIP, and in particular, the 2014 European election where amongst white British uh, individuals, about 30% voted for UKIP. So that is a very large number. They came first in the election. Now I know turnout isn't particularly high in the EU elections, but it's an interesting barometer of what's going on, and there's some interesting local <coughs> dynamics which are worth focusing on. Now, the media tended to focus on the story that weak support for UKIP in London and the Southeast. 
greater support in the Midlands and the North. And I think that picture is erroneous in many ways. And I want to I want to try and explain why I think that is. I think that if you it is true that London and the Southeast has more young people, more educated people, and also more ethnic minorities, all of which tend not to vote for UKIP. But what I think is a better test of the say tolerance of London hypothesis is to say, let's take a white working class person in London and a white working class person in Staffordshire or somewhere else, and let's compare apples to apples who voted for UKIP. So if we actually divide the UKIP vote by the white British share of the population and also control for the agent uh, education of the population, we see a completely different picture. So that's the, the picture before and that's the picture after. It's the southeast quadrant of the country which actually is voting UKIP when we control for the fact that ethnic minorities tend not to vote UKIP and uh, work, uh, upper middle class university educated people don't tend to vote UKIP. It seems to me, therefore, that we have to explain what's going on in the south, southern and eastern parts of England. And here I want to use a metaphor, really, which is to do with nuclear power. And that is, if you live very near to the nuclear power plant, uh, you might be quite, a lot of people are more comfortable with nuclear power. If you live very far away, you never think about it. But if you're close but not too close, that's when fear is actually maximized. I think something similar with ethnic diversity. It's not people living in diverse areas, but it's people living close to or within commuting distance of those diverse areas that seem to have elevated opposition to immigration and elevated UKIP voting. Uh, I'll show that another way here, and that is if we look just at the south of England, that same map, you see this green here that indicates very low UKIP support, and up in Boston, Lincolnshire, places such as that, we have a higher UKIP vote. Again, if we control for the fact that there are a lot more ethnic minorities and uh, educated and young people in London, the map looks like this. So we have really a ring of very strong uh, UKIP support, particularly amongst white working class people living in London and the Southeast, who are actually more likely than white working class people outside London and the Southeast to have voted UKIP. Uh, so there really is, uh, I think, a misconception out there that London is somehow this oasis of cosmopolitanism. Not true. It's only because London has more uh, demographics that are associated with uh, support for immigration. Uh, and there is, particularly if you look at these two maps, this is a map really showing the percentage of England that is white British. And these areas are more diverse as indicated by their coloring, particularly in London here. Likewise, that sort of correlates or corresponds reasonably well to the areas where uh, UKIP did pretty well in those 2014 elections. That is, once we screen out the fact that the demographics are different here. And that sort of brings me to, again to this question of the nuclear power plant, the idea that if you live proximal to diversity, not in it, but proximal to it, uh, you tend to be more opposed to immigration. Uh, there's a, a, a theory in uh, far, uh, people who do work on far-right politics called uh, the halo effect. And that says that it's in these white neighborhoods or white areas that ring diverse cities, such as Antwerp or Stockholm or London, as we see here, that you tend to get the strongest support for the far right because people are close enough to, to know that the diversity is there to be threatened by the impending change they think is coming their way, but they don't have a lot of indirect contact in their daily lives locally. Uh, and similarly, we see a little bit of this in Birmingham. Places like Boston or uh, Peterborough, I think, are characterized more by rapid ethnic change, so I don't think that's the halo effect. I think the halo effect, however, around London and the southeast is 
an important fact that hasn't really been commented upon uh, a great deal. Um, I go back to this, this chart. You can see the areas that are relatively anti-UKIP. Cambridge, Oxford, Northwest London, Southeast London, Norwich, the usual places you might expect. Uh, so if we control demographically, we can see that actually it's those places that are really the cosmopolitan tolerant places, not as much uh, all of London. Uh, okay, now I just want to return, get back, step back to the national level. What does all this mean? So we've seen that uh, at the local level, rapid ethnic change seems associated with heightened opposition to immigration. Um, established ethnic minority population, less opposition to immigration. However, if you live proximal but not in an area that's got ethnic minorities, then you tend to be more opposed. The net effect of all of those dynamics really is growing opposition. You can see in this Ipsos Mori graph, uh, and we quote Ipsos Mori a bunch here, but actually they've done excellent work in this area, particularly Bobby Duffy and his team. So if you look at the red blocks, this is net migration figures, and uh, this is 1992 up to 2013. Uh, so what you see, the, the um, red line really is rising in this period as net migration goes from something like 50,000 in the early 90s to about 250,000, now up to around 300. Uh, and you can see that the on the issues index, the proportion of people saying that immigration is the most important issue facing the country rises along with that. So I would argue, in fact, there is this link between immigration levels, raw numbers, and people's concerns. And that's to do with um, a level people's sense of threat to their national identity and particularly to their dominant ethnicity. And I'll just finish off with this slide showing, you know, as of October 2015, people saying immigration or immigrants is the top issue facing the country. One of the top issues, 52% uh, by far the most important issue in people's minds. So there's just some data there for you. Um, and I'm trying to stress this issue of uh, demographic change and the way it interacts with uh, cultural identities and, and nations. And, and just one little plug for a, a conference that we're, we're holding, <laughs> and you've got the leaflet there, but in April here at the LSE on issues of migration and national identity. We'll be talking a lot about this kind of thing. More leaflets here. <laughs> okay, and then um, finally, last but not least, Christine Whitehead uh, is going to talk about some of the public service impacts, particularly as they affect now.
mix as important as they were three or four or five years ago. So it's where, you know, the migrants were the cause of all the housing problems. Now migrants aren't the cause of all the housing problems. Supply is the cause of all the housing problems. And the way we're thinking about addressing that is by building more housing. Not that we'll do that, but that's by the way. Um, but in a sense, people see this, this housing problem as insoluble. But that means that migrants are no longer being regarded as the, the worst thing on earth in this context. Um, I guess the basic point is that uh, the total numbers, you know, the, the latest population projections, as interpreted by somebody other than me, which I put some dirty comments around it, is that uh, we're going to increase by 9.7 million over the next 25 years, reaching 73.4 million. Um, and half of this increase will come as a result of international migration, either directly or indirectly. Some of it is simply people coming in, other of it is that people who already come in and they will have children, and because they're covering at childbearing ages, they appear to have more children, although actually that is not necessarily true. Um, but I think in terms of what does that mean for housing, clearly if there's more population, there are more households, there is more demand for housing. That, that goes without saying. The question is how much more and does it differ between different types of migrants and between migrants and the indigenous population. And I think the first thing to say is obviously that migrants are normally adults or they may bring some small children with them, but on the whole they come singly and then they come as couples and then they have children. So uh, births happen within the household. They may need an extra room, but they don't need an extra home. Longevity, which is a, a massive reason for population increase, that we're all living longer, and men are proportionately living longer than women now, uh, still catching up, so we've got more couples, um, means that those are not having a very immediate direct effect on, uh, on the housing requirement. But of course, when we say all this, we're talking about new migration, and of to the statistics which we use are about people who were born abroad, and they might have been born abroad for 50, 70 years, and they've been here for 50 or 70, 60 years. So one question is, you know, they are the more immediate aspect of it. Uh, but secondly, where do they come from? And um, we've mentioned this already. Um, the EU citizens are going up, the non-EU citizens are sort of varying, they're still actually more non-EU than, than EU coming in, and the British citizens are also coming back to Britain. Now, why does that matter? Because people's experience of housing is very different in these different groups. E EU people have mainly come from countries where there is significant reasonable quality housing. A lot of the non-EU people are coming from areas where their experience and what they are prepared to live in, their style of living, may enable them to live with less housing, and that is the evidence that they do. Um, so there's that one. Much more importantly, I think, is why do they come? Because if we look at um, for what reason they come, they're the work-related lot, uh, they're the biggest at the moment, and those people are going to want housing, and they're going to live in that housing for as long as they stay in work in Britain. Um, but the formal study people, as many of you will know, if you're not in you, and you know, you're going to be out again fairly rapidly. Um, and so they're not staying for as long, and we have the 
accommodation and they are not putting quite the same pressure, although they are putting pressure on the system. Um, and with the yellow one down here is people joining other people and therefore are not immediately requiring additional housing, although they may be requiring more housing. So there are very different reasons and, and that mix between EU and non-EU and how long they're going to stay is one of the most important issues. How old are they? Well, I've already mentioned that they're usually fairly young. They are generally prepared to put up with quite poor housing for the war, but they are a child-bearing group, so they've got housing needs and they've come to But the fundamental of all of this is how long the people stay. Do they, when they migrate here, are they staying here forever? Are they going home after one year, after three years, after ten years? And all of those factors depend, determine how much housing that they're going to actually consume. And so the stylized stats, and they are stylized, and they may not always be quite that, but they're fairly close to it, is that, uh, that migrants initially form fewer households than people of the same age, um, um, household uh, couple structure, etc. So new migrants go and live with other people. They live in shared accommodation. And they do not form the same number of households as the indigenous population of similar types. And that lasts for rich countries and poor countries from where they come. Uh, that lasts significantly for around four to five years for richer countries and uh, up to 10 years for the overall system. So you've got to stay 10 years before you're making the same requirement on the housing system as the indigenous population. Um, similarly, they consume less. Uh, the numbers of, we're not very good at square meterage in Britain, but the numbers of bedrooms that they consume are less. And that's true for richer ones and the poorer ones. It's not specific to that. Thirdly, they go in initially to the private rented sector, and almost three quarters of them go in the private rented sector, and a lot of the others go to student accommodation or to living in other people's homes. So private rented sector provides lower levels of, of space, so they are again consuming less. Um, of course, over time, uh, households who stay start to behave exactly like indigenous populations. But even um, after 10 years, we don't have the same levels of home ownership among migrants as we do among the indigenous population. Um, what is interesting, and, and uh, Alan has done a lot of work on this, is the proportions of foreign-born, which as I say, don't have to be last year, they can be a long while ago, uh, in social housing is very similar to the indigenous population. And that's partly about uh, which types of, of household structure they, they end up in, and also because many of them are underpaid as compared to their, their, their training and their skills, and are more likely to be in housing need in the longer term. So unless you've got a refugee, unless you're a refugee, if you're non-EU, you have almost no rights for four or five years. Um, so it matters who receives and who stays and who goes. And on the whole, yes, they make some impact. It would be foolish to suggest that increasing population and households will not affect prices. And what fundamentally we're doing is like, not like for like, because they're doing it less, 
but there are more households and therefore they need more housing. And what is the fundamental to all of this is the slow supply adjustment. If we're not building any more housing, it doesn't really matter where the population has come from, whether it's come from me living longer or it's come from uh, a migrant, uh, the impact on, on house prices will be there. Um, but I don't think that these are anything like as great as the media suggests, and I agree with Alan that many of these effects in housing as well as in uh, in workplace are actually quite small. When we did work on Tier 1 and Tier 2, uh, migrants coming into Britain uh, through a map, we suggested that the effect was less than, of that particular group, which is a relatively small group, was less than 1%. Um, but there's also been lately a discussion which is sort of links with some of what you were saying about the interest that uh, which was put out of headlines that migration reduces house prices. It doesn't mean migration reduces house prices nationally. It means migration is seen to reduce house prices in localities where there is significant rapid in migration. But that doesn't mean that everywhere else, the people who are leaving because of the, the migrants cannot conceivably not be going somewhere else. So the impact on house prices is not overall. Um, so there's also a, a wider story, and two types of wider story, I think. The first which I have here, which is that migration is one part of the sort of international involvement in housing, and we've got international buyers, we've got who are buyers, often not migrants, they're people who may be here um, half a dozen times a year, but not down from the migration <coughs> at all, um, and people buying for their children to study, etc. Um, but there's also some evidence that international investment does increase supply, even in affordable homes, because uh, it allows uh, buildings to go ahead which would not otherwise have done. But I think is the other side of this, um, which is important, is the, uh, it, yes, in some parts of this story, it is perfectly legitimate and proper to equate or discuss migration and ethnicity as though they are fundamentally the same thing. They're not, but they are perceived often to be the same thing, and that is important in how people are perceiving the story. So I think that the core issue is that housing is in short supply. Housing is in short supply, therefore any increase in population is bad. But migrants are less bad than you and I. <laughs> <laughs> um, secondly, that immigration is not the same as race or ethnicity, but it is often perceived of as being related very strongly to the, to the story about uh, social cohesion. Um, thirdly, and I think this is important, but if you go and ask people what they're worried about locally, they're worried about people coming in to their locality. That doesn't mean from Afghanistan, it means from the next locality. They are worried that outsiders are coming into their area and pushing up prices or making it more difficult to rent. And there's an enormous amount of credit. Where there is a very specific problem is large households. In particular, asylum seekers, uh, refugees who are coming with large families because we don't have a large number of, of social uh, sector larger homes. So in that case, they are truly sometimes 
taking the home from the other person who's pretty crowded, who was expecting to be able to move into them. So in that, uh, that space, there is a real issue. And that is the space which the government is going to make worse by the, some of the policies which have just been suggested. Thank you all. Now, what about some comments or questions? Uh, I'll take them two or three at a time. Nice if you said who you were. Uh, you don't have to. So I'll take one there, one there, one at the back. Short and sharp. Thank you. My name is Peter. I'm retired and I'm a migrant. Uh, I have a question. Paul, you said that uh, the UK's attitude to migration was more positive or less negative compared with many other countries. I guess that was mostly European countries. I'm not sure which other, okay. But at the same time, the UK government seems to be the one of the most hostile in Europe against uh, immigration, bar the more fascist countries like Hungary and now in Poland, perhaps. So, so how can you explain that? At the same time, we heard that there were impact on wages, what, if anything, positive, the impact on housing, not as bad as the media suggests. So why does the UK government pursue such a policy? I don't, is this working? Yes, it's working. Uh, my name is Robert Dow. Um, I'm retired as well, um, and I was born in London, and I've uh, lived all over the country and in several other countries. Uh, my question is uh, that none of the panels seem to be addressing the issue of population density. And I'd be interested to know uh, whether the rate of change of population density is a factor that any of them have looked at. When you say, just check the answer, that the panel answers the right question. When you say population density, do you mean, we all know what population density is, but what, what do you mean about, I mean, do you mean that the place is becoming too dense in some parts? I'm, I'm thinking, um, in, if, for example, if you take the UK population and you strip out the, the Welsh and the Scots and, and the Northern Irish, you, and you have, uh, you know, rump England, um, then, then you have a population density that way exceeds any other country in the EU. 
Um, and in London, you have a population density that's uh, on a par with many international statistics. I think it's over uh, four or 5,000 per square kilometer. Um, and, and I know that doesn't uh, compare with some of the super cities in, in the Far East, uh, but it's still very much higher than um, many of the people still alive in the UK today ever thought they would experience. And we, to date, um, and, and my professional background is construction and property, uh, we to date haven't got and don't have the capability to develop the infrastructure uh, that can cope with it, the rate okay. of change. And that's okay. why I ask about population no, no, density. I understand the point. Yeah, good point. And I mean, all I'd say is, and no, I'm not going to answer this, it is interesting. I mean, London's population today is exactly the same as it was in 1939, <laughs> but it's a completely different population in so many ways. But anyway, I'm not going to answer that. I'll leave Christine to deal with that one. Um, <laughs> having set that <laughs> hair running, Polly, do you want to talk about the hostility of government? I mean, yes, what I said that we were marginally better than other countries is still not very good. I mean, you know, the best it could produce was we were 28% saying they saw some positive uh, effects of, of, of migration compared with those 24 countries. It did include America. It wasn't just Europe. A few other countries uh, was lower. Their, the average was 21%, but that's still pretty grim. And if you're trying to <coughs> win votes <coughs> and people are have been always uh, you know, adamantly against the idea of, of migration. I think the best you can hope for is uh, to be realistic about what you can do and what's likely to, be, to happen. I think it's a huge mistake of Cameron to promise what he couldn't deliver. I think you then have to argue the case, which you can argue about students, about, about nurses, and about the value, um, and um, stick to uh, you know, I think there must be rules, but you must just be realistic about them. I think people do panic if they think there are no rules and anybody can come in at any time and you don't know who's here or why. But I think it's, um, I think it's one, you know, there are a lot of things that um, are incredibly difficult for politicians and there are no good answers, but there are better and worse. You cannot stir up hatred and not stir up unreasonable expectations. Um, I think the fact that in the last election it wasn't much of an issue, despite it coming top of people's concern when asked out of nowhere, was quite interesting and quite useful that in the end there is a kind of realism that people know what really matters and what doesn't. And then on the housing front, of course, you know, the crisis of failure to build in boom and failure to build in bust and the way that developers have failed utterly and governments have failed utterly uh, that's something that can be fixed, and Christine can tell us how. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you can tack back on to answering the density question as well. Well, the density question, um, well, as, as Tony said, even in London, the population density is actually no higher than it was in 1939. It's actually probably, oh, we have better ways of dealing with it than we had in the the past, but just to be more fundamental and accept that we're talking UK rather than non and England in this context, 10% of our uh, um, land area is used for urban areas, uh, and for of less than 5% of that is housing. Sorry, sorry, half of that, 5% is housing, uh, directly housing. 11% is green belt, most of which is in, in England most of which is around London. So 
there is an issue about, you know, at what scale are we talking about density? I totally accept that there are infrastructure problems and so on, but in the main, our problem in the country is that we are underutilizing our infrastructure rather than what we are overutilizing our infrastructure. And so why don't we build housing? Was that what I was asking? Yes. Why, um, that's why, what, why do we not build That's what Lord Holick asked me last week. To which <laughs> the answer is a very, very complicated process of how we do it. Um, it is not the planning system, qua the planning system, but the complexities of our system which allow for individual negotiations and individual planning permission on every site. And, uh, and we have an industry which is a proper uh, industry of itself, and we call it speculative builders. We don't mean that in pejoratively necessarily. What we mean by that is that they build to demand. And if we have a volatile macroeconomy, then what happens is that every now and again, rather too often, we knock out most of our construction capacity and it takes time to build it up again. And if, as we fear, we might be nearer the next recession than we are the last recession, we probably never get back to the rate we were doing the time before. Right. I can you. tell you how to do it. All right, we'll, do, we'll do it at greater length on another. Well, thank you for that. Now, um, uh, Eric. What about um, question? I mean, there's no answer to the cap issue. It's a sort of political <laughs> question. But, but um, both Alan and Eric, there's a sort of science versus politics point here, isn't there? Because uh, I'm interested. I'm not going to ask. Not going to do a show of hands tonight. But I mean, I'm, very few people really believe in open borders if they think it through. However liberal you are, which we have more asylum seekers in Let's Britain. Ask. All right, let's ask. How many people think the United Kingdom should have a completely open border policy with no, no constraints at all on people coming from anywhere? No, the whole world. Just a completely <laughs> open borders policy. Well, you know, as a young person, I did. Used to. Well, Chris, it's no good. It's about, it's about <laughs> five or six. So everybody else, to varying degrees, believes there needs to be control of immigration and therefore border control, which I have to say is my own view, for want of avoidance of doubt. Now, but then there's people's feelings and science, isn't it? There's, there's some science in the impacts that we're discussing tonight in a rational way, and then there's how people feel. So if you were trying to advise the <laughs> questioner on how he could advise his political party, how would you help him balance science and politics? Well, that's, that's a good way of putting it. And I, I would, my research, and I think a lot of the research on immigration opinion suggests that the material side, the housing, the jobs, hospitals, is not what's driving public opinion. It's more to do with issues of national identity, to do with issues of the pace of cultural change. So I think unless the Labour Party or the Tories have a narrative explaining and immigration and how it fits into the story of national identity, I don't think they're going to get very far. So, I mean, I, I think there has to be, for example, I think saying, you know, Britain's getting more and more diverse and it's going to get ever more diverse and it's just going to keep getting more diverse and we're going to have lots of immigration is not a message that will play well. Uh, I think if you have a message that somehow says, look, there's a lot of assimilation happening, there's a lot of integration happening, the changes are actually less than you think, that might be a more productive way of making space for immigration. So I think if I were to advise, I think there has to be a way of getting the narrative uh, addressing issues of national identity. I think it's and important. this point is about the politicians who are, have lost 
or feel they've lost their authority and their confidence find it very hard to sell this message amongst several that they need to, to get across. I think that's part of the problem. Right, right. Would you like to give the, um, it doesn't have to be this political party, a political party advice on how they might get their message across better? Um, not, not really, actually. I'd say one thing as well. I, I think that some of this is actually um, about a feeling of sort of ne neglect among certain demographic groups, which actually reflect the demo are, are largely the demographic groups that um, have been sort of left behind by economic developments in the last sort of 30, 30 years or, or so. And they kind of want some attention sort of paid to them. So this is going to be sort of lower skill, working class work, work, workers, people um, in ex-industrial areas of, of the country and, and so on. And I think that actually the concern about immigration would subside if we could come up with policies that um, sort of provided some degree of hope and optimism for those groups so they had something to... What to, would that be? Well, that is... I'm not so <laughs> easy. I'm not quite sure about how, for example, you would revive black ports or something. Like <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Or that's not industrial, you know, but it's sort of these kind of things. But I think there were, you know, there were hopes. I mean, you can see when George Osborne talks about the Northern Powerhouse, he sort of actually does sort of understand that a bit. I mean, I think there are lots of paradoxes. So he looks at the glamorous bits. The glamorous bits. <laughs> but you, I mean, and there is the theory that it's sort of, you know, you're, you're going to go for trickle down, you're going to try and do something for Manchester and Leeds and so on, and as if you build up those that sort of sucks in the surrounding area. Just as, you know, the success of London means Chelmsford, apologies to anyone from Chelmsford here, but it's not the most exciting place, but it, it's economically vibrant in part because of its proximity to London. So you eventually hope that Oldham ends up vibrant because it's proximity to central Manchester. And, the, you know, there's a real paradox. Manchester is pumping out tens of thousands of graduates a year, young, um, you know, well-qualified people whose quality of life, if they stayed in Manchester, is perhaps probably higher than if they come to London, unless you're right at the top of you know, the, tri the tree. Um, and yet it doesn't seem to be able to hold them in, in, in these areas. And so I, I would try and build some comparative advantage of those sectors uh, you know, um, around that. And then I, th I think the migration thing would, you know, it's change is uncomfortable for these groups. And they look around for, every, you know, what's the cause of this change? And immigration is a very visible cause. And in, in Barking, going back to Eric's chart, with Barking and Dagenham, with the wards uh, that showed up all together in the top <laughs> right-hand corner, um, because that was an area that had also had very rapid industrial decline in parallel with that population change. So the sort of, they clearly were... Linked. They were definitely linked, I think, in Barking and Dagenham, which is changing now. Let's take some more questions. Um, okay, any female questioners tonight? <laughs> Should have one. <laughs> Gentleman at the there. back was early on, and one at the front. Hello. A lot of the problems with immigration numbers would be solved if we came out of Europe altogether and controlled our borders. Okay, very straightforward point. Uh, gentleman at the front here. 
and then one right at the back. Actively encover, encourage some female participation in the speakers if we can. Very good. <laughs> My friend, excellent. Right here. This is not necessarily just for Eric, but how would you define white British and how does it differ from people whose grandparents were immigrants but they were white as well compared to they were black or Asian? White British definition question, good. And then gentleman at the back and then I'll come back to... Hi there. Um, two points which I understood um, from the front, which was increased immigration, increased the population, which increases the house prices. Second point was increase of immigration increases the de demand and competition for jobs, which reduces wages. Surely there's too much immigration. Okay, and then question there, and I'll come back to you. But one, did you answer? No, sir. Well, I could. Uh, I'll I'll come come on thing, yeah. Thank you very much for all your presentations. I'm a PhD student here, and for the past four years, I've, I've been working as a court interpreter. Um, in London here. Um, my question is, I find it very interesting when immigration is explored and analyzed in combination with other uh, aspects like, for example, with housing or education or health. But I'm wondering whether you've got any uh, interesting thoughts um, about immigration and the criminal justice system in this country. Do you have any Give us a hint as to where you'd like the answer to that question to, <laughs> to go, really, because uh, it could go in so many ways. Just give us a sort of slight sense of where, 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 where I would prefer to leave it open. So oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Well, that serves me right, doesn't it? Okay. Um, EU exit. White, what's the, what's the white British question yeah. first? We'll come back. I'm not done. Come back. <laughs> okay. White British. I question. mean, it's pretty simple. Most of the time, I'm just using it as ticked on the census, right? So, and actually, um, a majority of Jews, for example, tick the white British box. Um, I, but I think that's actually appropriate because I think a lot of them would identify that way because of the process of assimilation, because many of them have been in the country many generations. So I do think it's not just people with kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, Britannic ancestry, but also people who've assimilated into that, uh, the Boris Johnsons and the, uh, you know, the others who, who've uh, Miliband and so on. Um, but the other point, I just want to make a comment on this left behind, which I, I think we can sometimes get a bit distracted by. It is true, of course, that people with less than uh, high school or, or with no qualifications are more likely to vote UKIP. But it is also true that a majority of those with university degrees want reduced immigration. It is also true that class and education do not explain that much about UKIP support. A lot of it is just people who are upset about immigration regardless of education or class or whatever. Now there is a left behind dimension but it is the, a very small part of explaining who votes for UKIP. So I don't want to, I think that's been oversold. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, talk about Europe. Um, sure. Yep. Uh, I think it's very hard to predict how countries in Europe themselves are going to respond to this sudden arrival of lots of migrants. Um, you know, we can see this odd division breaking up already. There's Poland and Hungary taking, and, and other, some other Eastern European countries taking very oppositional views, saying they can't even pass through our country, or yes, they can if they're kind of in a sealed train on their way to Germany. Um, <clears throat> But yet, at the same time, they're the ones who are most passionately opposed to David Cameron's suggestion that you might in any way stop Poles or Hungarians coming to live here. Um, 
I can't see where this is all going to settle, but I have to feel that I'm afraid when I look at the, under, uh, uh, at the underpinning polling that Europe will change its mind about borders. I think it will toughen things up. The fact that the Germans are already having to, well, I say already, they've taken in huge numbers of people. <clears throat> I don't think it's just going to be static. Um, I don't think Schengen is going to hold. Um, I, I, you know, I can't read into the future, but I just feel this has been such a shock to the European uh, countries that um, I doubt that it'll all just go away again, because after all, these, this influx of people is not going to stop uh, unless drastic action is taken, and suddenly you're getting people talking about you know, the Australian option, which isn't quite shooting people, but it almost is. Um, it's turning around boats in the middle of the sea and saying, I don't care where you go, you're not coming anywhere near here, or if you want to come anywhere near here, you're going on a little tiny atoll and staying there forever. Um, I, you know, I just sort of imagine that these people, I mean, I think, you know, we've been amazingly fortunate, but imagine that the people arriving in Lesbos and in, uh, and in uh, Italy were arriving in the Isle of Wight. Can you imagine in this country we would tolerate that for a moment before drastic uh, solutions weren't suggested. We're very upset about Calais, but good God, that's in Calais. It's not in the Isle of Wight. <laughs> um, you know, we, we may, I, I may say that we had these rather <clears throat> slightly more generous attitudes in certain ways than others do, but I don't think it would last long under that kind of pressure if we were under it. And maybe we will become under it. I'm pretty sure, though, that if we left Europe, I'm absolutely sure the French would open all the doors. Why wouldn't they? So the idea that the problem is over because you stop inter-EU migration, it certainly isn't. This isn't going away anytime soon. People want from all over the world, for good reason, to live in a safe, secure, prosperous, essentially social democratic countries that are not corrupt and not ruled by dictators. And that's Europe. And Europe will continue to be a huge draw for all the things we most admire about it. So let's be very careful not to undermine those very things ourselves by becoming monstrous ourselves uh, as a way of keeping people away. Okay, very clear. Um, Alan, do you want to have a go at the question at, question at the backs point? Um, about wages and... Yes. Yes. I mean... I mean, what I said is that I, I don't think the impact of migration on wages has been, um, has been large, actually. And I think that, you know, I, I've sort of laid out the reasons why, because I, I, I just don't think there are sort of fixed number of jobs or fixed number of quality of jobs. Um, and so what I am slightly concerned about here, I mean, there has been a very serious problem with living standards sort of post-crisis in the UK which had the, the biggest falls in real incomes that probably since records began but I, I sort of I fear that actually if one got control over migration which uh, and sort of limited it which I'm not actually for the reasons that Polly just gave is I, I, I think is not really as, as easy to say much less easy to do you wouldn't actually resolve the problems that we have uh, with living standards um, and it wouldn't have any effect and actually if you think about you know within the EU free mobility 
we have you know some countries with people leaving that to come to the UK often the, the better educated more dynamic people if you think of that in a UK context that would be like I talked about Blackpool again apologies to people anybody from Blackpool um, here you know Blackpool is the sort of place that the younger most better educated most dynamic people leave now would you rather be an economy and a place which is attracting people like that or a place that people are leaving. And I think we would actually, we'd be better off if we're the place where people come in. These are the problems that come with success, as Polly said, not the cause of um, failures. That's my personal view. Well, actually, I mean, I think in the, in the housing context, yeah, the 70s, what was London like in the 70s, Christine? It wasn't hmm? so great. Well, I mean, when the population was falling, <laughs> no, no, you were alluding to the 70s earlier, indeed the 60s, uh, when London's population was falling, it wasn't a great it success, was, a, was it? It was a god-awful place to live, to be honest. It was still overcrowded, massively overcrowded on the underground, more than it is now, even though population was falling. And uh, it was a feeling of uh, things weren't going right, and that uh, we were really quite depressed, if you read the, the literature of the time. But I think that the point about you know, success being part of the story is really important because we talk about the demographics leading to house price increases, but income growth leads to house price increases much more effectively. So if we want 2% per annum income growth, then we'll get far more effect on house prices from that than we'll get from this type of immigration. So success breeds problems. But we can so solve good. them. It wasn't so good. <laughs> what about the criminal justice system? This nice open question. Anybody want to? Um... I'm very law-abiding. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> are you suggesting that in migration that there is a, a, a problem, either that there are more or fewer migrants who fetch up in court? Well, I think that these are very. Can you the microphone just so we can? Thanks. in courts on a daily basis and on a daily basis I find these two issues very sensitive so um, that was just the, this kind of need to ask this kind of question I, mean, I think it certainly is sensitive in the sense that if you get some particularly brutal crime that happens to be committed by a migrant you will have huge headlines all over the place uh, the implication being that it's somehow to do with the fact that they're a migrant. And also there have been problems about sending people back again, which you would certainly want to do, or people should have, could have been sent back earlier. Um, but I think the statistics are that migrants are marginally less likely to commit crimes, I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'd know if it were the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> we'd know if it were the other way around. Yeah. Right, let's take one, or at least one more round of questions. I'd like, yep, right in the middle there. And another question of there, and then jump up, jump up the front. Yeah. So there, yes, your hand be fine. Thank you for your present. Oh, shall I? And then. <laughs> shall I go? Go on. You're, Thanks you're for your presentations. Um, I'm British. I'm also Bangladeshi, child of immigrants. And the takeaway that I've taken from your points tonight is, on the whole, impacts of migration, immigration is more positive than negative as it's portrayed in the media. Now. How can we ensure that research like yours is more effectively reflected in media? Because I feel, as from my background, from my friend's background, there's a lot of xenophobia, even racism, and the, in, in the way that migration is approached 
in media. So how can we ensure that this kind of research is reflected in the scaremongering that's happening? Actually, thank you. Okay, very good. And there, Miss, you got the microphone. Yes, I do. Hi, I'm Helena. I'm a master's student in international migration here at the LSE. Um, what I thought about since I came here is uh, there's a seeming obsession with control of the border in this country. And the only explanation I've gotten this far is that this is an island nation, so uh, we're used to having control of our borders. Uh, but I can't really quite get that point since, I mean, just a couple of centuries you had a border in Asia and in Africa and all over the place. Uh, where does this um, obsession with control of the border come from um, that I don't see in any other European countries. Uh, and then also just a, s a smaller question, uh, why are we talking about net migration all the time? Because then you have to calculate the people leaving and how is that relevant at all? Okay, and gentlemen, well, we'll take two questions, that gentleman and then this chap here. Yes, and then you. Yeah, okay, I can start. Hi, only, uh, someone mentioned Poles there, and uh, only 1% of Poles, and actually Filipinos also, um, claim income support in UK at the moment, compared with 39% of uh, Somalis, perhaps, and also similar numbers of non-EU um, immigrants. Is there such a thing as a good and bad immigration? And looking at, sorry about that, and looking at the current trends, what does it tell us uh, about the future of the economy and social and so on? Okay, and gentleman here. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm a computer programmer, also a migrant. I do have a question. Um, co politicians always say that they should attract the brightest and um, probably the more the, in, the richer ones to come to the country. And obviously, uh, we did see that. Um, right? Is there a case to be more liberal to the um, immigrants who come from higher income and more high educated countries? And yeah. So, yeah, is there a case okay. for that? Okay, all right, that's a good kind of complex. Ian, go on in and get a microphone to Ian here at the front. All right, we'll take you as well, and then well, that's enough. So that's not enough questions. But, but <laughs> I wanted to bring you back to one of the important things that Polly talked about, which was the extent to which I think survey evidence shows um, that people are really upset by the promises which politicians make in relation to control that they clearly can't keep. Um, and I wondered whether the political scientists on the panel actually had any ideas about how politicians might be encouraged not to do this. Um, <laughs> because you've been talking about politics as about feelings uh, as opposed to science, but there ought to be some science actually which allows us to think about how it is that not people down there, but people up there might actually have their, their politics manipulated or made more productive. Good point. And then there was just that in the middle area. Thank you. Um, I'm immigrant myself. Um, you see, the, uh, the major thing uh, we've, I think we didn't mention is that threat to our high street seems to be the biggest fear of the voters. So the politicians have a problem with that because they vote, the natives vote for the government. So threat to change in our high street is the biggest threat. Perception. You mean a cultural change? Uh, like abso absolutely. Way, way of life. CAP, uh, Common agric Agricultural Policy, 
it precisely was introduced because uh, to, to, to keep that way of life in, in France. Yes, yes, yes. In France, a farmer gets uh, from my studies, maybe I forgot, uh, maybe now it was a long time ago, but in France, the French farmer gets uh, 20,000 or so euros to, to, to do the farm. Otherwise, he would just close the farm. Okay, a good point. Now, I'm, we see that the French certainly still, I think, see their, uh, the cap like that. Uh, at least they hope it is. Uh, right, now, a number of questions. Then. I'm going to allow the... There's so many I've allowed. Uh, I'm going to allow my expert panel to choose which of them they'd like to talk about. Well, there's so many here. I, I probably don't want to take hold of more than a couple. Um, the, the trust question is an important one that political scientists have worked on a lot, and trust in government has been falling in the UK and other Western countries uh, for quite some time. I think in the case of immigration, I'm not sure that if the government said we're going to let in 350 because that's what we think we can do, uh, would be a winning strategy. I mean, I think that they. You know, yes, there is a, a, a trust problem, uh, but I also think that trust problem's there, regardless of the immigration issue. So I'm not, yes, I'm not sure whether the government's giving an accurate figure would, would necessarily win them more votes. But I agree with you; they should give the accurate figure. Uh, on in terms of the, uh, someone mentioned about the England being uniquely protective of its borders. I'm not actually sure that's the case. I mean, you know, I'm from Canada, which is a relatively high immigration country, and I remember when. If there are ever issues of people washing up on shore, that causes a great hue and cry. And, and suddenly, out of the blue, you get this completely different tone. So I think it's not necessarily a, a, anything specific to the UK. That would be my, my gut feel on that. Um, and just one other point on the uh, point about uh, the media. And, and it's, it's one of the interesting things is that a lot of UK uh, ethnic minorities who are UK-born, like yourself, um, also have relatively high opposition to immigration. It's interesting. For example, Sikhs and Hindus, it's over 60, 65% who say they want a reduction. So it's just an interesting thing. I don't know quite whether it's just in the political culture, uh, but it's interesting to note that uh, established ethnic minorities are also quite opposed to uh, immigration. Uh, right, net migration is the craziest, uh, maddest measurement because as if a government can, it's hard enough to control the inflow, can control the outflow of people who decide to go live in Australia or Canada. I mean, you know, half of our doc junior doctors seem to be off at the moment and even then it seems to be very odd we can't hold on to them. I'd force them to stay until they're paid back their time but, uh, to the NHS, but that's another matter. But you can't stop them going. Um, I think the idea behind it is to try not to sound racist so that you say, well, you know, it's not a question of who these people are. It's just a question of crude numbers. So we may be losing lots of our, our own homegrown doctors and bringing in lots of Somalis who perhaps are, you know, will take a time while longer to become employable and may have lower educational standards or whatever. But that's not the point. We're just looking at numbers. So I think it was an attempt to do that, but of course it was absolutely a mad measure. Um, when you talk about if only the media would get the uh, facts across, I'm always being asked this, uh, if only the media. It's actually, I'm afraid, a category error. The media um, is a force of nature, and in this country, 
obnoxious. Um, <laughs> it is, oh, you know, 85% owned by non-taxpaying barons who live abroad and who wish the country no, well, no, no good, who wish to pull us out of Europe and do all sorts of destructive things from afar without paying for any of the price of it themselves. And they are great foghorns. Um, and there is no uh, controlling them, really. We are very fortunate to have the BBC. Uh, long may it last, though, of course, those very media barons are the ones trying to destroy the BBC, and we must all fight like hell to stop that happening, because that's absolutely on our doorstep uh, as, as a next step forward. But it's no use really saying, if only the media, this or that. I mean, some of us are nicer than others, but uh, some of us try harder than others to be honest with facts. But then we're, of course, introduced by the other side who call The Guardian or The Independent or The Financial Times grossly biased. Um, it's all a matter of your point of view, you might say. But facts are important. And academics could do more to get facts out there, but it's very difficult for them too, because what is the medium? by which you have an impact with your research. Academics spend a lot of time agonizing over it, and it's very difficult. Perhaps Alan could tell us how. <laughs> um, Actually, one thing, just to interrupt, I mean, one thing that has changed in the debate in the last 10 years, is that, or 15 years, is that business has become a much more powerful lobbyist for immigration than was the case in the past. And that is a slight variant in the mix. That is one thing that has changed. Anyway, Alan. Um, yeah, no, I'll just talk perhaps a bit about two, two things that have come up repeatedly. One is sort of trust and control. I, I think one of the troubles with sort of getting sort of messages out there is, is that not everyone really believes it. I mean, I mean academics, I mean, I, I'll give my, my favorite sort of example of this. I find it slightly depressing. So the ONS, after the 2011 census, um, uh, you know, asked people, uh, what do you think the fraction of foreign-born people in the, in the UK is? And as happens in most countries, people overestimate the numbers wildly. That's sort of to be expected. Then the ONS sort of press a little bit more, and they ask, well, suppose I told you that, the, you know, the ONS, the official government body, said the actual percentage is this. Does that change your view? And most people say, no. <laughs> and, you know, so that's a point at which you don't trust uh, the Office National Statistics. Now, there's a bit more about why, don't you? And one of a common answer is, um, well, because of lots of I illegal immigration. Now, il measuring illegal immigrants, and there are illegal immigrants in the country, is a difficult thing. The ONS does its best, I, I think, and I know, being a sort of person who knows about this stuff, does the best to sort of, you know, estimate the numbers in the, in the way they can. But, of course, the notion that somebody as an individual, I know better than the ONS how many illegal immigrants there are in the UK, um, you know, based on my personal experience, you know, just, you know that doesn't really ring, ring true to me. But it, it reflects a wider loss of trust in the people who run the country, who are in authority in the country, who, who include academics that the feeling is that they run the country in the interest of themselves <coughs> and neglected um, other groups. And that means that what they say isn't really believed because it's regarded as, as self-serving. That extends to the ONS, which I know is not really part of some conspiracy to do, do that, but I, I can understand why people wouldn't necessarily um, see that. 
The other thing is that people, you know, these are things that people care about. They care what their high street looks like. Um, you know, what, whether they're shops, they want to shop in down there and things. And they want to have, be able to have control over their life. So control comes in. They want control over what, how their neighbourhood looks and feels. How, you know, they want control over the borders. But you, there's no guarantee of control. There is no way in which everybody individually controls. So it goes back to a, fear, a, a loss of con um, control. And, and, you know, politicians just promise control because it's what people desperately want. So even though they've been let down time and time again, just fall in love again and <laughs> you know you fall out of love when you're sort of let down in the same same old way it's that sort of dynamic it's very human isn't it, isn't it? keep restarting the clock well lots, lots of organizations keep restarting the clock don't they christine i think we probably said what has to be said but 